we started this series last Sunday, we've been kind of walking through the last statements of Jesus on the cross sort of backwards. Last week we started with, into your hands I commit my spirit. Today we're going to look at the last statement Jesus made, uh, the sixth statement. It is finished. John 19.30 says, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want you to, if you have something to write with, I want you to grab something and take some notes. I, I want you to take a journey with me this morning into the full meaning. What does it mean that, that it is finished? This is so ripe with spiritual and scriptural revelation and insight. It would take months and months of a series to ever unpack all of this. What I want to do this morning is I just want to lay out, we're going to move fast, and as we wrap near the end of this service, I believe that God has a divine appointment for many of us in this room. He's going to meet you here. He's going to meet you in power. He's going to meet you. I've been praying this morning that your mind would be open, that your heart would be alert, and that when the Holy Spirit draws you, you're going to be ready to respond and walk into the fullness of exactly what he finished. So what does it mean Jesus said it's finished? Nobody totally understands. No one knows the whole picture. God coming from heaven down to earth, becoming one of us, and voluntarily dying is an act so profound we can't totally comprehend it. See, the death of Jesus isn't math, it's not science, it's not biology, it's not anatomy. It's poetry. Lived out in human flesh. This is a drama of God revealing the darkness of the human soul and the relentless love of God for us. When you look at this horrific scene of Jesus being tortured and beaten and suffering and dying on the cross from one angle, it looks so horrible, we can hardly stand to look at it. Your, your, your natural instinct is to look away. It's repulsive. From another angle, it's so beautiful and it's so sacrificial, we can barely stay on our feet. It brings you to your knees, you feel it in your stomach, you dare not look away. It's a masterpiece. The master artist has painted a self-portrait, revealing both his love and our need for it. The ancient Greeks uh, were proud of their ability to say a lot in a few words. And they had a famous statement that goes like this, to give an ocean of matter in a drop of language was regarded as perfect speech. An ocean of matter in a drop of language, this is what we see in the three most powerful words ever spoken. Jesus gave an ocean of meaning in a drop of words. So if you're ready to jot down some thoughts this morning, let me give you what exactly was it that Jesus finished. This list I'm going to give you is not complete, but it'll at least help us to, to tunnel and channel into what Jesus' work did. Here's the first thing. Every prophecy about Jesus was finished. When he said, it is finished, every prophecy about Jesus was finished. Isaiah 53, 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
Hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross, prophets had described in extreme detail the exact kind of death that he would, that he would endure. One by one, all of these prophecies had been fulfilled. He was going to be born from a virgin. He would come from Abraham's family. He would be a descendant of David. He was named before he was born. He would be born in Bethlehem. His parents would travel to Egypt and then return to Palestine. All this was prophesied hundreds of years before he was born. Someone would come warning everyone, a forerunner of Christ, that Jesus was here and he had arrived. He would heal the blind and the deaf and the mute and the crippled. He would calm a storm. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be despised and rejected and hated without reason. He would be tortured and beaten and crucified. He would be betrayed by a close friend, forsaken by his disciples. A false witness would rise up against him. He would refuse to defend himself. His hands and feet would be pierced like a criminal. The crowd would mock him. His clothes would be torn and gambled for. On the cross, he would say he was thirsty. All of that and hundreds of other things were prophesied in advance. Hundreds of years in advance. And Jesus finished them all. Now, just a side note, if Jesus literally, hang on this word, if Jesus literally, not figuratively, not in some metaphor, not in some allegory, but if Jesus literally fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies in perfect detail about the first time he came to earth, what do you think he'll fulfill about the second time he comes? Every prophecy in literal detail will be fulfilled in his second coming. Every prophecy was finished. Man, I want you to, you're going to have to like make up for the people who didn't set their clock up this morning, okay? I want you to say this with me. It is finished. Oh, that's really good. One more time. It is finished. Every prophecy about Jesus' life and death was finished. Here's the second one. Jesus' suffering was finished. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go on to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and raised to life. We just sang about it a few minutes ago. Jesus, man of sorrows. He was called man of sorrows for a reason. He was tortured by people, he was tortured by Satan, and he was tortured by God. We don't think about it that way, do we? But it was God's will that he would be tortured. Pain was inflicted on him by his friends and his enemies. But, but that was just what happened on the cross. Back up for a minute, Jesus' entire life was lived in the shadow of the coming cross. He gave several hints of that throughout his lifetime. He talked about how his hour had not yet come. He talked about the cup he had to drink. He talked about the baptism he must endure. He told his disciples in this verse we just read that he must suffer. You know what's worse than not knowing your future is definitely knowing it and it's a bad one. Jesus knew his future. And it was not a good one. No one has ever carried a bigger burden than Jesus. The suffering on his body was excruciating, but the suffering in his soul was unimaginable. 
What do you recover from faster? Physical pain or emotional? Physical. You can go to sleep, your body will rest, it'll heal itself, it'll recover, but emotional and mental and internal burdens lay on you like concrete. And it takes a while to recover from those. He appeared before Caiaphas, before Pilate, before Herod, and then back to Pilate. He was tortured, he was beaten, he was mocked, spikes driven into his hand and feet, a crown of thorns driven into his temple. The priest condemned him, the crowd rejected him, one of the thieves hanging beside him made fun of him. But now, at last, his suffering is over. The cup of suffering has been drained, the storm of God's justice has passed, the darkness has ended, the wages of sin have been paid, the sweat, the blood, and the tears are beginning to dry up. Never, 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 never again will he experience pain. Never again will he be condemned. Never again will he endure God's wrath. Never again will Satan challenge him. Never again will he carry the sins of the world. Jesus' suffering was finished. And that was a release of victory. Would you say it with me one more time this morning? It is finished. It is finished. I want you to get this in your spirit. Here's the third thing. Jesus' mission was finished. Jesus came to seek. He came to serve. He came to save. He came to provide a way for us to get back to God. John 1.29 says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sin of the world? For thousands of years, generation after generation, so many of the stories we know from Scripture were living illustrations looking forward to the moment when the Messiah would come and die and he would take away the sin of the whole world. Forgiveness would be released on the earth. If you look at the way the tabernacle functioned in the Old Testament, it was a shadow of the future. God's prophets had all foretold of this moment. Abel's better sacrifice had finally arrived. Noah's ark to save humanity had finally arrived. Abraham's offering of Isaac and the lamb in the thicket had been sacrificed. The Passover lamb had been crucified. Moses' bronze servant had been lifted up in the wilderness and had cured the serpent's bite. The rock that Moses struck has finally become a living fountain. What did Jesus finish? Jesus finished the mission of the Messiah. He atoned for the sin of the world. Everything that a holy God requires had been completed. And you and I can't add one thing to it. Not one thing. Nothing can we add. Jesus finished his mission. The curtain separating the holy of holies... From the holy place was torn from top to bottom. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this point in their gospel. Why was that important? Why did it matter that the veil was torn, separating the place where most people could come? Separating it from the holy of holies where only the high priest himself could come? Why was it important that it was torn from top to bottom? It was torn from top to bottom because... The ultimate sacrifice had come, and he broke it. He sacri- the sacrifice was so complete, it was so perfect, it was so final, it was so finished. Not only did he finish the work, he broke the room where the work's done. 
finished it from top to bottom. No separation would ever be needed again. He paid it all. Jesus finished his mission. Would you get it in your spirit this morning and say it with me? It is finished. Here's the fourth one. Sin was finished. Come on. It's about to get good. Don't fall asleep. Don't, hey, take a nap later. Don't miss the hour right now. Sin was finished. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all, who does that include? Everybody. Like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Look at this. This is very important language. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, it's hard to understand this verse without understanding the imagery. During Old Testament times, on the Day of Atonement, two goats were brought to the temple. One goat was sacrificed and taken, and his blood was drawn, and that blood of that sacrificed goat was taking, taken into the Holy of Holies, where we just talked about the veil was torn. It was sprinkled on the mercy seat, which revealed what Christ would do in the future. It was a type, it was a shadow. It was a, a way for us to understand what it would look like when Jesus came and offered forgiveness. And that goat's blood was sacrificed. But there was a second goat left outside the tent. Aaron, the high priest, representing the entire nation of Israel, would come out of the tabernacle. He would lay both of his hands on the head of the living goat. And he would confess the sins of the nation as he would lay his hands on that goat's head. And then that goat, still alive would be taken up by some of the Israelite men, and that goat would travel with these, this caravan of men for days if necessary, and that goat was taken off into an uninhabited land, and then that, ga- that goat would be released. And when that goat was released, it was so far away from the Israelites, that goat would never be seen again. It was taken to an uninhabited place so that it would never be seen again. And symbolically, the Israelites would never see their sin again. As far as the east is from the west, it had been cast aside and separated. Now fast forward to the cross, and Jesus is that scapegoat. God took all of our sins and laid them on him. God put his hands on Jesus, and he laid upon him all of our sins. If Jesus, if God laid my sins on Jesus, then they're no longer on me. Now think about it. Right? If God laid all of your sins on Jesus, then they're no longer on you. So sin is in me, it's not on me. Now, there's a very important distinction there between in and on. I still have the capacity to sin, and by the way, I still do. Anybody else? Thanks, just me. Thank you. I do still sin, but the punishment and the judgment and the guilt and the condemnation is not on me. It's on Him. There is therefore now no condemnation. To those that are in Christ Jesus that walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh, then why do we struggle with so much guilt and pressure and legalism and fear and all of this other stuff? 
Because I have no guilt on me. God took the guilt off me. He took the judgment off me. And he laid it on him. There's a difference between in and on. And it's important. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You and I are no longer have to live under the power of any sin. We don't have to live under the power of immorality or under the power of addiction or under the power of bondage. We've been freed by what Jesus did on the cross. He opened the prison door cell, but you've got to walk out. Sometimes we're not free because we hadn't heard the news we can be free. There are Christians that haven't heard the news they can be free. They just live in this monotonous cycle of showing up at church every day and doing their thing and filling the square and checking the box. But they've accepted a condition that Jesus finished. They accepted that this is the reality of my life and this is the way it is and there's nothing I can do about it. And I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word, if you want out, you can get out. Sometimes... We've heard, but we don't believe it. We'd rather believe a lie than the truth. Sometimes we're not free because we don't want to be free. We don't want to change. The familiarity of bondage has become more comfortable and seems less risky than freedom. Let me tell you something that's attached to freedom. Responsibility. And it's easier to back up and say, it was my parents. It wasn't my fault. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what happened to me. I don't know what you've been through, but I know what he's been through. And what he's been through finishes it. If you want it to be finished, I'm telling you on the authority of Scripture, if you want, if you want out, the door's open. Jesus has paid the price. He's made his power available to you. He's given you the power over sin. Now watch this. You might want to write this down. That doesn't mean your life will be sinless, but it does mean you can sin less. Did you hear me? That doesn't mean your life will be sinless, but it does mean you can sin less. Sin was finished. Would you say it with me? It is finished. Here's the last one. Satan's power was finished. Somebody's going to get free this morning. What you did is you hit your snooze 12 times. And you said, I didn't think I was going to make it, but I did. And I want to tell you something. God has a divine appointment for some people in this room. And freedom's coming to your life. you got to walk into it. Let me lay this out for a minute. This is crazy when you think about it. Satan's best plan actually did him in. Satan's best plan was his own ruin. I know what I'll do. I'll kill their God. That'll fix it. And it actually became his own. He had filled Judas's heart with betrayal, but that actually helped bring about Christ's death, which was God's will and Satan's defeat. Now, you've got to stay with me on this one. You're going to find some freedom in your life if you want it. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
Satan knew that the Messiah was coming who was going to crush his head, so he tried to stop it. How did he try to stop it? Pharaoh ordered all Jewish baby boys killed. Haman tried to kill all the Jews. He tried to have them all executed. Remember the story in Esther? King Herod had all the baby boys killed in Jesus' hometown of Bethlehem. What do you think World War II was about when Hitler tried to annihilate all the Jews? Satan has been trying and trying and trying. He knows the plan is there. He's hated God's people. He's hated God's chosen people. Now in a blind rage, Satan drives to have Jesus killed. And in so doing, he fulfills scripture. Is it a comforting thought to you to know that even Satan's best efforts to destroy Jesus help bring about God's plan? Even when he's trying to destroy God, he's cooperating with him? Oh, come on. Just wait a minute, it's going to get good. I can remember when I was, um, I can remember when I was uh, uh, young, around 12. I, I was raised in such an intense atmosphere of, uh, of paranoia and fear. I look back and I realize one of the attacks the enemy targeted on my life was fear. I lived, in, I lived in an atmosphere of paranoia and intensity and fear. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, fear will paralyze you. It will cripple you. It will handicap you. Isn't it interesting in uh, the gospel, isn't it interesting all through scripture that most of the time when an angel appears or when God sends a message to earth, his first words are, don't be afraid. He comes to Mary and he says, hey, you're going to have the son... Fear not, Mary, you've been chosen, right? Before he even gives the message. Why? Do you know Jesus' most often given instruction in the gospel is don't be afraid? It's said different ways. He said that more than he said anything else. You know why? Because Jesus knows our tendency to live in fear and to be limited. The enemy wants to bully you and limit you. When I was young, I grew up in an atmosphere with such intense, and it gripped my life from, from 12 to about uh, maybe, I don't know, 19, 18, 19, 20 years old. Fear and, uh, and it just gripped, it suffocated my life. I, lived, I had intense bouts. I'm talking about unnatural, not normal, intense bouts. I remember when I was 13 or 14, uh, I remember one time this fear got on me so bad. My parents had left home. They were out running errands or whatever. I was home at work by myself. I had become so afraid, so fearful. I backed myself in a corner in our living room with a 20-gauge shotgun, and I loaded it, and I just sat there waiting for something to come in and get me. I'm telling you, not normal fear. And I could go on and on and on and on and tell you story after story after story after story. I can remember driving down the street in the car one day, feeling this overwhelming, penetrating fear in my life. And I can remember just something after year in and year out, and sometimes it'd get better and sometimes it'd get worse, and year in and year out, one day, I, riding down the road in the car, I broke down and I said, there's no way, there's no way that God intended for me to live a life like this. I can remember saying as I was riding the car, if Jesus' death doesn't cover this, then he's a liar. 
This is not what Jesus intended for my life. And I'm telling you, and I can remember even saying this out loud. And it sounds odd, but I can remember saying, Satan, if you're going to do something to me, come on and do it. Bring it. Kill me or do whatever you're going to do to me. I lived in fear of somebody breaking in my house. Lived in fear. Satan, if you're going to do it, do it. Do it, do it, get it over with. But I'm not going to live in fear another minute. Because whatever you're going to do to me is better than this. So I said, God, I trust you and I believe you. And I believe you didn't die for me to live like this. And I'm gonna. And can I tell you something? God is my witness. Since that moment, I've walked in freedom. I don't live in fear. I'm not afraid. I'm telling you the God's truth. I, I found why not because I'm cool or awesome or got sick of it or got afraid of. Listen, one thing Satan doesn't know how to do is he doesn't know how to turn the attack off. And sometimes he'll attack you till he pushes you right in God's arms. He'll just push you too far, and it's not because of you, but it's because of the finished work of Christ. Do you know the scripture, all things work together for the good of those who love God? I believe God used even Satan's attack on my life to fulfill his plan for me. God had, God had seasons. I have walked through seasons since that time of intensity. Diabetes and Hurricane Katrina, and I'm talking about intense seasons. Intense seasons. My, my, the verse God gave me when he called me to ministries in Isaiah when he says, fear not. When I was 16 years old, it's a long story, I won't tell it. When I was 16 years old, God gave me that verse in multiple settings. Fear not, for I am with you. I know you. I made you. When you walk through the fire, they will not burn you. When you walk through the water, it will not take you over. I took on a 32-foot wave a mile from my house. I'm not playing this morning. Do you think God is up to something? He intends to finish some stuff today. All things work together for the good of those that love God. Even Satan's best plan against you will be used by God to bring about his will in your life if you'll follow him. God can even use Satan. He already did it. He used him to crucify his son. Isn't that something? This isn't yin-yang. This isn't two equal gods, a good one and a bad one, and they're just fighting it out. This is God and a created, broken, fallen, dark being. And he will continue to work on your life if you'll let him. Colossians 2.15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan's power was finished. This doesn't mean you'll never be tempted again. What it does mean is Satan's rights over your life have been canceled. It means Satan is a defeated enemy and should be treated like one. So why do we entertain his ways? Why do we yield to his manipulation? Why do we believe his lies? Why do we allow him to feed and exaggerate our fears? Satan's ability over believers is finished and we must live in freedom. Do you believe that? Would you say it with me one more time? It is finished. You know what it is finished means in Greek, it's actually uh, one long word. And it means that the work is finished 
like it's completed, like the work's not going to go on, but the results of the work will. The work is finished, but the results aren't. They apply eternally, dominated, defeated, done. This is Jesus' victory cry. This is the it that Jesus finished. This is Jesus' victory statement, and it's ours too. Now, what does all of that mean? Let's bring it right down here to where we live. Let's, let's, just, let's just come face to face with it this morning. It's finished, but it ain't over. Is every battle in your life over? Every challenge you'll ever face, is it already over? No, it's not over. It's finished. The work's finished, but it's not over. You got some stuff going on in your life this morning? If it, if it was over, everybody would be free. If it was over, everybody would be saved. If it was over, there'd be no need of a church because there'd be no mission left on earth to do. If it was over. It's not over. It is finished. But those aren't the same thing. Have you applied the finished work of Jesus to your life? Are there some things that you need Jesus to finish this morning? Are there some things, are there some attacks of the enemy? Are there some sinful things? Are there some consequences of sin? Are there some things going on in your life that you need to connect to the finished work of Jesus? They need to be finished. It's finished, but it's not over. I'm going to ask our, our worship team to come, and I want to ask you to stand with me, and I want to ask our prayer team to come. This morning, I want to ask you to do ask you to do a couple things. One is this. It's finished, but it's not over. There, there are some scheduled divine appointments in this room. By that, I don't mean that you have to have any expectation of any, any kind of reaction except what's going on in here. Something in here, something inside here needs to be finished. Somebody, you, you, you entered this room and you have lived with this funky disbelief that Jesus' work cannot help you in what you're battling. I'm telling you, Satan told me that lie for years. There, there was a sin that followed through my family line that even after I was a believer for a few years, I, the enemy would torture me and he would lie to me and he would tell me, other people can live free in that area, but you can't. Because you're different. That's not for you. Can I tell you something? It's finished. Jesus didn't have holes in his solution. He didn't do that for some people and not for you. There's some people in this room battling with disbelief, and I just want you to take a chance this morning and step out and believe Jesus finished work. It's finished, man. It's finished. You don't have to walk in what you're walking in. You don't have to live through what you're living through. It's finished. There's some stuff that's finished, and it needs to be received and walked in. The door's open if you want out. You've got to decide if you want out. I can't make that decision for you. I know the battle I went through. 
I know the struggle I went through for years. And I'm telling you, do I live a perfect life? No. Am I ever tempted? Yes. Do I do things wrong sometimes? Yes. But I'm telling you, from the testimony of my life, there's some things that have been done. They're done. And they're gone. Finished. Has to be stepped into. Here's the other thought. It's finished, but it's not over. Do you know 160,000 people in Shelby County got up this morning and didn't go to church anywhere? Maybe when we lose an hour's sleep, maybe it was more like 165,000. I don't know. What does that do to your heart? 160,000 people that are your neighbors and mine, and they don't have a connection to Jesus' family anywhere. Most of probably don't even have a relationship with God at all. Christianity in our state is shrinking. It's kind of held out for a while, more than other parts of the country, but it's shrinking now. What does that do to your heart? Jesus isn't going to do anything else. He already finished his work. He did all. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit doesn't convict and all. Yes, but Jesus' provisionary work is done. There's no work to be done beyond that. It's finished, but it's not over. What does that do to your heart? What does this cross say to you and to me about the people that we know around us that don't know them? What does it say? What are you going to do about that? It's finished, but it's not over. If it was over, if all Jesus wanted was for you and I to know him, he might as well just shut the door and take us to heaven. Right? Mission accomplished. But there's more. So here's what I want to ask. This morning, every eye closed. You're here today and you say, there's some sin, there's some struggle, there's some frustration, there's some sicknesses in my body or my family, there's some fears, there's some wounds, there's some things that I believe I'm going to step into and receive Jesus' finished work on this morning in my life. I'm going to walk by faith and I'm going to step out, I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to say, God, by your grace today, by faith, I step into the finished work of Jesus. Man, I'm telling you, just a minute, I'm going to call and I want you to come. And there are other folks in this room, I want to ask you to do this. You're here, and God has put on your heart a person who doesn't know Him. You've been praying, you've been serving, you've been trying to find a way to share coffee or the table somehow. You're looking forward to Easter, praying there's going to be a breakthrough in their life. Here's what I want you to do. When we, when we have this call, what I want you to do is I want you to come to prayer. And I want you to stand in for them. And I want you to proclaim the finished work of Jesus over their life. I want you to call their name out. I want you to say, by faith today, I believe that Jesus' finished work is going to create a breakthrough. Jesus' finished work is going to touch this person. Jesus, somehow, this Easter, this Christmas, Monday, Tuesday, who cares? I believe that Jesus' finished work is going to apply, is going to touch, is going to break through. It's, it's finished, but it's not over. But I believe in this person's life, it's going to be over. And I want you just to, I want you to come in, spend two minutes. I want you to stand in for them. And I want you to say, God, I stand 
between this gap, between heaven and earth, I stand in for this person and I call their name out in prayer. Lord, this morning you've set divine appointments. And as we come to meet you in prayer, God, I pray today your power and your finished work will be accomplished. With every eye closed, the worship team, come on.